Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 80 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. This episode sees us start a new series on another dimension of creative writing, and that is crafting the scene. Over the next few episodes, we're going to be looking at some of the essential considerations for developing a scene and some of the things that we might need to remember for what might be termed specialist scenes. These are romance and sex scenes, scenes involving combat and opening and closing scenes. But first of all, I want to start with a couple of bits of news. I'm pleased to say that I'll be appearing again at the first page Lakes Writers course in November. This is a regular annual event for me, joining other writers in the beautiful setting of the Lake District for insightful teaching practical workshops and one-to-one feedback and this year promises to be a fantastic time as we focus on the genre of crime writing with the award-winning author Mari Hanna. We're also going to be looking at how to become a successful blogger with the also award-winning Beth Pipe and building your presence as a writer both in the online and physical world with army veteran speaker and author Wendy H. Jones. We still have a few places left on the course and you can join us for anything from a day to a week. The dates of that are from the Monday, the 31st of October to Friday, the 4th of November. And you can find out further details at firstpagecourses.com. But if you're interested in coming, drop me a line, andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com so that I can give you a discount as one of the podcast listeners. Second thing to mention, as most of you know, I'm running a crowdfunding campaign at the moment to develop a handbook which will distill all of the best advice and insight from all of the episodes of the podcast into one accessible volume. Now, my passion is to make this handbook a key resource for the next generation of aspiring writers. And by next generation, I mean people who are 10 or 110 or anywhere in between. I'm now starting to develop the structure of the book and I'll be sharing more about that with supporters and contributors in the next couple of weeks. If you've been thinking about contributing to the campaign, please do visit the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook page at indiegogo.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com where there are loads of wonderful rewards available, lots more information about the project. So back to this episode, and we are going to make a start on looking at another dimension of creative writing. And I want to introduce you today to the topic of crafting a scene. Now, the ability to write a good scene is an essential aspect of good writing, and it will take careful use of all of the tools in your writer's tool belt to pull it off. In his book, How to Write, Harry Bingham says this, the essential unit of effective writing is the scene. And if you can write a strong scene, the chances are you can write a strong book. In this episode, we're going to introduce this topic by asking three fundamental questions. And they are, one, what is the objective of the scene? Two, how does the scene begin and end? And three, what gives the scene energy and direction? Now, before we get into some of the insights, I want to give you an example of a scene. And I'm going to read a passage to you from Scott Lynch's excellent book, The Lies of Locke Lamora. Now, this passage, which is slightly edited for language, is the first part of the prologue. Here it is. At the height of the long, wet summer of the 77th year of Sendavani, the thief-maker of Camor paid a sudden and unannounced visit to the eyeless priest at the Temple of Perilandro, desperately hoping to sell him the Lamora boy. Have I got a deal for you, the thief-maker began, perhaps inauspiciously. 
Another deal like Caldo and Galdo, maybe, said the eyeless priest. I've still got my hands full training those giggling idiots out of every bad habit they picked up from you and replace them with the bad habits I need. Now, Chains, the thief-maker shrugged, I told you they were poo-flinging little monkeys when we made the deal, and it was good enough for you at the... Or maybe another deal like Sabatha. The priest's richer, deeper voice chased the thief-maker's objection right back down his throat. I'm sure you recall charging me everything but my dead mother's kneecaps for her. I should have paid you in copper and watched you spring a rupture trying to haul it all away. Ah, but she was special. And this boy, this boy, he's special too, said the thief-maker. Everything you asked me to look for after I sold you Kalo and Galdo. Everything you liked so much in Sabatha. He's Kamori, but he's a mongrel. Therin and Vadran blood. He's got larceny in his heart. Sure as the sea's full of fish. And I can even let you have him at a discount? The eyeless priest spent a long moment mulling this. You'll pardon me, he said finally, if experience suggests that I would be wise to meet unexpected generosity from you by arming myself and putting my back against a wall. The thief-maker tried to let a vaguely sincere expression scurry onto his face, where it froze in evident discomfort. His shrug was theatrically casual. There are uh, problems with the boy, yes, but the problems are unique to his situation in my care. Were he under yours, I'm sure they would uh, vanish. Oh-ho, you have a magic boy, why didn't you say so? The priest scratched his forehead beneath the white silk blindfold that covered his eyes. Magnificent. I'll plant him in the ground and grow a vine to an enchanted land beyond the clouds. Ah, 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 ah. I've tasted the flavour of sarcasm from you before, Chains. The thief-maker gave an arthritic mock-bow. Is it really so hard to say you're interested? The eyeless priest spat. I suppose Kalo, Galdo and Sabatha might be able to use a playmate. Suppose I'm willing to spend about three coppers for an unlooked-for mystery boy. What's the boy's problem? Uh, his problem, said the thief-maker, is that if I can't sell him to you, I'm going to have to slit his throat and throw him in the bay, and I'm going to have to do that tonight. This short scene encapsulates so many of the issues that we are going to consider in this episode, and I'll be referring back to it as we go along. But let's start with the most important aspect of a scene, and that's the question, what is the objective of the scene? What is it there for? Now, this question can have many answers, but unless you're writing experimental prose of some kind, you must have at least one answer, and it's the same every time, and it's this. The fundamental objective of a scene is to move the story forward in some way. Now, the scene might do this by focusing on a single aspect, or it might move the scene forward along a range of several aspects. So, for example, the scene I read from The Lies of Locke Lamora achieves several objectives. It introduces us to the setting, it presents two characters, one of which will go on to be a major character. It then introduces us through dialogue to a range of other characters, including the protagonist. It catches our interest in presenting these intriguing characters to us in an exotic setting. And it makes us wonder what the circumstances are that would mean that the thief maker has to slit the boy's throat if he can't sell him. Now, the main objective of this scene is to introduce us to the protagonist of the story, Loch Lamora, and to intrigue us with his mysterious and perilous circumstances. 
Now, all of these are examples of moving the story forward. And the days when a novelist could simply spend 20, 30 or 50 pages setting the scene are long gone. You won't get that past the commissioning editor unless you've already got a solid track record of books that have sold well. This doesn't mean that you can't start with some scene setting, but if you do so, you need to be careful. The reader must be immersed and engrossed by your description, and that alone, without any support from the characters and the action and dialogue that they bring. So the most important aspect of developing your scene is to ask that very simple and important question. What is it there for? If you can't think of a good answer to that question, the best thing to do may be simply to cut it out. Now this brings us on to the second issue, and that is the beginning and end of a scene. If you know what the objective of your scene is, it's a lot easier to know how it should begin and how it should end, and what kind of shape it should take. And when we're thinking about how the scene should begin, there are a few things to bear in mind. First, when the scene starts, where are all the characters? What else is in the physical space of the scene? And what are the characters' intentions? In thinking about these issues, we can borrow from the theatre. When a play is being rehearsed, the actors will spend time with the director working out where they will be at the start of the scene, who else and what else is around, and where they will move to during the course of the scene. Now, this is a technique known as blocking, and we'll have a more detailed look at it in the next episode. Let's go on and think about the objectives of the character. This is related to the overall objective of the scene, but it's worth thinking about the desires of each individual character as they enter the scene. This will help to give the scene pace and direction, a subject which I'll come on to in a moment. In the scene I quoted earlier, the story starts with the thief maker having a very definite objective, which is to sell the Lamora boy and to do it quickly. And it may well be that the eyeless priest also has a very particular objective. And although he feigns disinterest, perhaps his particular objective is to buy that boy from the thief maker. Now, there are some generally acknowledged ways to start a scene. You can, for example, start with some context and setting and then move in towards more specific things like character and purpose. Now, in his book, How to Write, Harry Bingham talks about classic scene structure and he says that the setting should move from the broad to the narrow and time should move from the general to the specific. And this gives us a good idea of one way to start a scene. The other way, of course, is to start with a bang, with some action or dialogue. In this case, the aim is simply to grab the reader's attention with some startling activity or revelation right from the very beginning. In his book, Earthly Powers, Anthony Burgess starts with this sentence. It was the afternoon of my 81st birthday and I was in bed with my catamite when Ali announced that the Archbishop had come to see me. Now, this is a wonderfully outrageous first line, and there's a great tradition of using these first lines to grab the reader. I think in this case, Burgess is being a little bit ironic in using such a line as this, but the principle is a good one. What we do have to remember is that a strong first line will attract the reader to start with, but it's the immersiveness of the setting, it's the attraction of the characters, and it's their interest in the storyline that will keep them. The end of the scene also needs some consideration. We should think about the answers to the questions, how does the scene end and when does it end? Now, the answer to the second of those two questions, when does the scene end, is very simple. It should end when it has achieved its objective. In the passage I read, the scene ends when the main objective is achieved. Now, we said that that objective was to introduce us to the protagonist of the story and also to intrigue us with his mysterious 
and perilous circumstances. And Scott Lynch very wisely finishes the scene once that information is presented. And I say very wisely because one of the main problems with finishing a scene can be not knowing when it should finish and letting it run on too long. The literary agent Noah Lukeman bemoans what he calls the inflated script, a manuscript that is just too long. And one of the problems that causes this is run-on scenes. That is, scenes that should have stopped way, way before they actually do. So when your scene has achieved its objective, it needs to finish. But the end of the scene also has to contribute to one of the other fundamental principles of crafting a scene, and that is to give the thing movement and energy and direction. The end of the scene must fulfill the objective of the scene, but it must also propel the reader into the next scene. Now to do this, the end of the scene should in some way be looking forward to what's coming next, as is the case in the scene that I read to you earlier. And there are lots of different ways that you can do this. The website nownovel.com offers these examples of ways to end a scene. You can end a scene mid-event. Cliffhangers are a time-honoured way of wrapping up the scene. For example, in his novel Cloud Atlas, David Mitchell ends one scene in the middle of the action as the heroine is entering a potentially fatal conflict with the antagonist's henchman. You can end the scene with a character epiphany. A character may have a sudden realisation that changes the story from that point forward. You can end with a character learning new information or setting a new motive or goal. And this new realisation carries the character and the reader into the next scene. You can end a scene with emotional turmoil. The event or incident of the scene may be over, but that does not mean that the character or characters have emerged unscathed. Or you can end with a promise. In other words, the scene ends, but it leaves the reader anticipating what is ahead. For example, in a mystery novel, a scene might end with one character promising to tell another about a big secret the town has been hiding. Now, all of these endings give due consideration to the third fundamental aspect of writing the scene, and that is ensuring that it has both energy and direction. It's essential that a scene has the energy to move forward, but it also has to have the direction that the author wants to take it. We've already talked about some of the aspects of the scene that will help to do that. Things like moving from the general to the specific, from setting and context to character and purpose. And starting the scene well and finishing it well will also help to give the scene the energy and direction that it needs. And you'll notice that we're not just talking about pace and energy here. A scene has to have direction and the reader has to be invested in it. So your scene might have terrific energy. It might involve a massive battle, for example. But if it doesn't have purpose and it doesn't have direction, then it's not going anywhere and the reader won't care. Another way to think about direction is to ask, why should the reader care? And in that sense, the scene has to have an objective, a desire, a question, and it's this process of answering the question that keeps it moving, but keeps it moving in the right direction. Now, a way to give a scene both pace and direction is to include dialogue. Dialogue by its nature tends to be dramatic, so use it to its strengths. Use dialogue in short, energetic bursts and try to avoid what Noah Lukeman calls commonplace dialogue. That is dialogue that just rambles on about everyday mundane things. Now you can find out more about the uses of dialogue by going way back to episode two of the podcast where I explored the different types and uses of dialogue. I also talked about how dialogue can be a powerful element in revealing character, energizing and directing the storyline and maintaining tension. The other way to maintain the energy of a scene is to make sure that you avoid the info dump. 
Now, info dumps are chunks of description or explanation, and they can seem very useful from the author's point of view as a way to reveal information, but they can kill the energy of the scene and mean the reader just gets bored. So handle them with care. Finally, for the energy and movement of the scene to work well, there needs to be a balance between the external action and the internal journey of the characters. Now, this might seem like a slightly abstract point, and much of it can be made practical by simply making sure that your protagonist and the other major characters care about what's happening. In the passage I read, the thief maker cares about the outcome of the trade with the eyeless priest. And the author cleverly and subtly shows us that the thief maker really doesn't want to slit this boy's throat. He says that the boy is special. He's desperate to sell him. He's talking about a discount. The thief maker's internal journey in that scene is to the, get to the point where he can avoid the distasteful and offensive job of killing this boy. And the action of the scene fulfills that desire. So if we think about that scene that I read to you, it has an objective, which is to introduce us to the protagonist and to spark our interest in him. It has a clear beginning and ending, and with the use of movement from the general to the specific and dialogue, the author maintains both the pace and the direction. So to summarize for this episode, we've begun to look at this issue of crafting a really good scene. And to start with, we've thought about three critical areas to consider when, we've write, when we're writing a scene. And these are, what is the objective of the scene? How does the scene begin and end? And what gives the scene energy and direction? Now the object or objects of a scene should always include a good answer to the question, what is the scene for? Why is it there? And other answers can also flow from that. A scene might be there to present a character, to present some setting, to advance the storyline, to reveal some important fact or piece of information. At the beginning of a scene, the intentions of the characters as well as their physical positions and the physical positions of other objects in the space should be clear in the reader's mind. And the impact of these things as the scene progresses should also be made clear to the reader. In other words, where are people going? How are they reacting to their environment? Does it all make sense? When it closes, the objective of the scene should be fulfilled and the reader needs to be propelled into the next scene. And the energy and direction of the scene should be enhanced and preserved by the judicious use of dialogue, by moving the scene from the general and specific, by avoiding info dumps and by balancing the internal desires of the characters with the external actions in the scene. So that's all for this episode. I hope you found that useful. Today I have quoted from the following works. The Lies of Loch Lamora by Scott Lynch, published by Galantz. Earthly Powers by Anthony Burgess, published by Hutchinson. The Writers and Artists Guide to How to Write by Harry Bingham, published by Bloomsbury. The First Five Pages by Noah Lukeman, published by Oxford University Press. And I've also quoted from the website nownovel.com. As ever, I'll get some show notes up on Pinterest. If you're interested in joining me for that Lakes Writers course, from anything from a day to a week, you can check it out at firstpagecourses.com. But do drop me a line before you book because I can get you a discount. My email address is andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. If you're interested in finding out more or contributing to the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook Project, just go to indiegogo.com and look up the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook. So that's all for now. I'll be back with episode 81 in which we'll look at the lessons we can learn from the theatre about structuring and blocking a scene. So until then, thank you again for listening and goodbye. Music.